Welcome to the Read This, Watch That podcast. I am Anthony. And I am Dale. How are you this, this afternoon? Not bad. It's, weather has cleared up, so the rain has gone, it looks like, for uh, at least for a bit. So that's very good because we've been getting, uh, getting a lot of rain. So it's nice to see the sun out. Yeah, it's a really nice day. It's supposed to be in the mid-80s, Tuesday and Wednesday, or the low 80s. So Yikes. getting a little, little reprieve. Little reprieve from the um, the inevitable. Today we're talking about the 1960 movie House of Usher, based on the Edgar Allan Poe short story published in 1839. Uh, we can get right. You want to get right into the movie, and then afterwards, um, let me just go through the cast real quick, and then we can maybe sure. talk about. You got anything to talk about in terms of? I mean, the two big. I think the two big people here, Vincent Price and Roger Corman. Uh, I would add Mark Damon to that. Uh, Mark Damon's kind of a interesting guy and still with us. As yes. is Roger Corman. Yes. Um. So, House of Usher, based on the fall of House of Usher, was a 1960 American international. Pictures film directed and produced by Roger Corman. It had a $300,000 budget and it starred Vincent Price as a Roderick Usher, Myrna Fahey as Madeline Usher, Mark Damon as Philip Winthrop. I forgot to write down the fourth cast member. Uh, oh, who is the butler? Yeah. Bishop, Bishop the butler? Uh, Bristol. 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 Uh, screenplay was by our old friend Richard Matheson, and it was yes. considered the first of eight Corman Poe movies. Why don't you give me now? You have seen this before? You know, I don't think so. I had not. This is not like Poe and some of these AIP. I, uh, some of the, I don't know if they have a cult following so much, but a lot of horror fans like them in the same way people like like um you know series of films like say the universal films or the hammer films mm-hmm. um not my cup of tea because although i don't think this one falls into that category once you started getting into the you know 65 66 67 they started to get a bit trippy for me mm. uh so yeah just not really my cup of tea and poe was never one of my favorites I, way too dark for way too dark for me. But give me your initial. Uh, so essentially, if you saw it, you pretty much forgot about it. Uh, yes, I think that's All true. Right. If I did see it when I was a kid um, or young, when I was younger, it's not something that stuck with me. Um, so this so, was effectively yeah, the first time I've seen it. So hit me with your uh, your initial thoughts. Then we'll then we'll. Just go through a quick summary, and then we can talk about what we watched. Yeah, yeah. So my my initial thoughts were that this was this had some really really good elements to it, and it was it was a little bit it was a little bit too long, I think. Um, and and I think that maybe it the it, it wasn't right necessarily for a movie. Or they should have done more to make it right for a movie. But um, I thought that it was particularly for the time, right? This is this is essentially a movie made in the fifties, 
Um, although I think it actually was made in the 60s now that I'm thinking about it. Um, but, you know, it was that era, late 50s, early 60s, um, still very much in the mode of those 50 horror, 50s horror movies. Um, uh, and this one, I thought, did a really good job of presenting a, you know, very, very succinct idea horror idea uh, together. Although again, it was, it was just a little bit, a little bit long, but I liked it. It was creepy. It was, if you didn't know the story, it was definitely a bit of a mystery as to kind of what was going to happen. You had uh, a great character in Roderick Usher with Vincent Price. You had a fairly, you know, unmemorable rest of the cast um, if you were to press me, other than um, Myrna Fahey's um, portrayal of the crazed Madeline, which I thought was actually was good. And I thought those scenes were good. And I kind of hinted at some of the, <clears throat> excuse me, some of the shock horror that would come in the 60s and 70s. Um, and I thought I thought was was pretty good. So I was overall, I was I was happy I watched it. I thought it was pretty good. Um it was again a little bit long, but um, definitely uh, I thought it was worth worth my time in watching it. Um, I do like Poe. Um, I don't mind that darker stuff, and uh, I appreciate the effort that went into this. I was surprised. I have seen bits and pieces of the later Corman Poe stuff that almost the pieces I've seen, such as like the Mask of Red Death almost border on the psychedelic, which is just not something that interests me at all. I don't find it enjoyable. The first thing that struck me was it looked like a Hammer film. Yes. It had the color. So I was kind of happy that it wasn't one of those far out, trippy 1967 bad bad uh, effects um, you know, where they do like the wavy lines and uh, crazy colors, but right, right. But they only have a few things to work with. So in, in today's age, it looks really, really kind of cheap and cheesy. But it looked like it had like the color in the film, the texture, the style with the limited sets and the costuming, the set design and that gothic feel. You know, if I was passing through the room and I didn't see Vincent Price and I didn't hear uh, Mark Damon's Brooklyn accent. Um, <laughs> I would have thought it was a Hammer film, which is is a positive. That's a, that's a yeah. comp- compliment, not a not a detraction. I agree with you. There's not enough there for an hour and twenty minute movie. There's just not enough story there to keep it interesting. I don't think that's a subjective a subjective um, assessment. And that makes it really overwrought in this very gothic soap opera melodramatic way. Um, I also not a big I don't I'm kind of a fan of the you get the team together to go fight the evil and a bigger cast. This is a very intimate, very intimate film, which depending upon your taste is, is good or bad. 
There's essentially four cast members. There's a dream sequence where there's a couple of the people running around in, but so heavily made up that it wouldn't matter who they are. And yes. but this is a four. It really could. I'm. I never. You know. I. I didn't look it up, but this could easily be a stage play. Yes, I agree. Absolutely. And I'd be shocked. Like I said, I don't recall reading that it was, but I'd be shocked if it wasn't. So what we basically have here is a young man named Philip Winthrop is uh, doing a pop-in on his fiance Madeline Usher. He is traveling by horse. It doesn't say what year it is. The story was written in 1839. It has an 1830s, 1840s feel to it. Like It's definitely pre-Civil War, definitely post-colonial. Yep. So it has a very early Victorian very early Victorian feel feel to it. But he's on horseback coming from Boston. He's going to stop in to see his fiance, Madeline Usher. Uh, when he gets there, he, uh, his, Madeline's brother, Roderick Usher, played by Vincent Price, is throwing up all sorts of obstructions to the marriage. Yes. Doesn't want him in the house, finally relents. Then he goes through a number, a series of scenes discussing it'll never work out. We're doomed. The Usher family's doomed. Madeline's doomed. I'm doomed. I'm dying. She's dying. The house is right. dying. And that's the that's the that's and that's the, it. That's the conceit, right? Is the right. house is the the Usher line is sour. The Usher line is toxic, and we can talk about. I, I did like the litany of crimes committed by the forefathers of Roderick and Madeline. That was. That was kind yes. of funny. Yes. Um, and it is Philip's wish to stay and ultimately take her away because in the story, he had met her in Boston. Yes. And everything was fine. She was bright and popular and, and you know, uh, vivacious. Everybody he, misses her. And everyone misses her. The, the entire gang misses her. Yeah. Now, so that's really the conceit is Philip's attempt to extricate Madeline from this <clears throat> brooding house, <clears throat> brooding family, and Roderick Usher's kind of prediction, premonition that they're all doomed and the line should end. Right. Just not, not just that they're doomed, but ultimately that, well, two things. Um, she's going to die early, right? So he's kind of like, don't bother with her. You should go, you know, forget about us because she's going to die. She's already on her way out. And second, even if she weren't, you really need to stay away because the ushers really shouldn't reproduce anymore because look at our ancestry and all of these horrible people and all of these horrible things that we've done as a, you know, our ancestors have done. And that is the, basic structure of this is ever increasing conversations but i mean it's more complicated than this but in general it's it's conversation after conversation after conversation yeah between roderick and philip yes uh where he's just he he learns a little bit more each time he has a conversation right it's it Roderick goes into out. more detail, right? Because initially yeah. it's just kind of like, 
leave, sir, please leave. You know, right. we don't want you here. It's no good for you here. And he teases out more and more and more. But really, it's it's essentially a series of conversations, mostly between, you know, Philip is talking to Madeline about ultimately get your things, we're leaving. Philip is talking to Roderick Usher and Roderick Usher is, is like you say, slowly telling him, you know, ain't going to happen. It's no good. Leave. Why? Well, because we're cursed. We're why? And, you know, he just goes on this explanation about the house of Usher was actually brought over from England brick by brick. And the ancestors of Roderick and Madeline hang in portraits. What did you think about the artwork in the film for 1839? It seemed very post-expressionistic to me. Yes, it was definitely not. Um, uh, um, it was definitely not uh, artwork designed to look like artwork you would see from the time period <laughs> there was but i loved was, it yeah i absolutely loved it i did i did like it great it was very evocative and one one piece and now i, I wish i did, didn't jot it down i'm kind of um i just watched this on on uh friday morning so i'm kind of freewheeling it here almost reminded me of um a van like van gogh style a little bit, except that it it's it's a little bit more. It, it's it almost has some cube. It looked to me like it almost had some cubist elements. Yeah, to there it. was some Dali in there, and, maybe and there was possibly definitely Edward Munch. Maybe some yeah, right with the colors and the yeah yeah. No, I mean it was it was very it was and the brush strokes <laughs> was great. Brush, but the litany of crimes committed by the answer, you never get a real like they seem like. They're clearly in the United States. They're what I would call the squire class at, at the very least. Yes. There's no nobility in the United States, but they're the squire class. They have they have an estate. It at one time was big and lovely, so they have money. But the house came over from England. So over in England, I'm thinking maybe they're like a notch below nobility, maybe low nobility, but the because the litany of crimes is we have bribery, blackmail, we have murder, piracy, we have uh, genocide. I have no idea. I was I, I wanted more. Yeah, of that was a good one. Yeah, <laughs> genocide, and then they differentiated. There was the slave trade and the flesh trade. Yes. Yes, yeah, slave uh, trade versus prostitution. That's how yeah. I took it, right? And this was all, you know, but reconciling that with the nobility was, or, or even like low nobility was a little weird, a little, probably uh, some. I don't know, minor nobility. I mean, if you go back and you take a look at the history of, of England and the English nobility, I mean, you know, the, the, on the south side of the river of, in London, um, well, what is now London? What is it called? Southwick or something like that. It was all land ed owned by the, um, uh, you know, the the bishop, and he for centuries, literally, I think for centuries, the bishop traditionally ran brothels. <laughs> so, I mean, 
know, might, might still. <laughs> it might still, right? You never know. So, you know, I, I kind of, I kind of took it as, oh yeah, these are, these are at, at a certain level, this is just your run of the will, run of the mill kind of low life English Lords, you know, never really got anywhere because they are scumbags. Um, but on the other hand, the portraits of them made them look particularly fiendish. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just a weird, like, if an ancestor had in the past kind of made their fortune doing these things, that's one thing. But you're supposed to have the impression that this evil occurred within the house itself. Yes. And if, yeah. And I don't know yes. how many, like, yes. ladies of English nobility do, are. How do you do genocide in a house? <laughs> right. Exactly. So, but but that's all right. It was the effect was the effect was fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not not kind of like trying to deconstruct it. The effect was fine. Like a noble woman being involved in bribery, possibly black. She she would need to. She has all her forefathers in the flesh trade making money. Yep. But I think the point is less the specifics that um, sure they come from a a long line of scoundrels. The, particularly terrible people. Yeah. Um, even for... The English nobility. The English. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just joking, English listeners, and I know we have some, so yes. I love the English. Yes. I'm part of... I, I come from that, so... Um, I don't. The English are my, 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 my enemies. Well, that more is the pity for you that you don't come from that fine, fine British stock. Uh, it's true. Moving on, real quickly now before we before we get before we get into any trouble. Yeah. (laughs) So we have that, and um, when so one of the things I I had a laugh was, um, and then I actually found this critique. So usually I'm pretty open about oh I read this and then saw it, but like yeah, Roderick Usher tells poor Philip that he suffers from I don't know every ailment under the sun. Yes. He is sensitive to light, touch, noise, his taste buds, he has to eat the blandest of foods yes. because his taste buds are hypersensitive. So when he first comes into the house and is turned he he, he first arrives at the house and is initially turned away by Bishop, the butler. Um but he insists on staying like like he should have because he wants yep. to see his, his betrothed. Yes. He has to take his boots off. Um, and we later find out that's because Roderick Usher has hypersensitive hearing, which is also very painful. Although I will point out, except for that one time, he walks around the entire movie in his riding boots. <laughs> Now, Again, with the consistency of minor details, your fascination. I appreciate it. Well, that's the point of the podcast. We <laughs> talk about these, right? Like, we don't go back to... It's true. We got to talk about this like like in the real... Like it's the real world, right? That's the fun of it. But we, can always, we can always fall back on, you know, oh, that was a stupid mistake. That's an inconsistency. But now, what I found interesting, and I, I think maybe if I would have done it I would have done this movie a bit differently. When he first meets Roderick Usher and once played by brilliantly, of course, by Vincent Price. I mean, just yes. 
the height, the voice, the look. I hope our he, listeners have have. I mean, we'll talk about. I I we have a whole. I have a whole bit on Vincent Price, but you until you he's a character, right? For me, right? Vincent Price was always Vincent Price, and for me, growing up in the seventies and eighties, he was a bit of a, um, you know, it, it was. It was a. It was a very much a. He was. He was kind of the king of that horror campiness, right? It's yeah. But, it was the, but the you voice for, and yeah, everything but you, like that. And you forget though about how powerful his presence is. Very aristocratic presence, and that's that probably is real and stems from his background. Probably a little bit, yes. But we can talk more about him. Yeah, later. sure. I don't want to digress too much onto price, but. So Roderick is telling Philip, I'm once he, uh, for lack of a better word, warms up to Philip and and, and deigns to explain a few things. He's sensitive to everything, almost almost like the almost like the stereotype autistic child. Yes, it's it's light. It's touch. It's, you know, tactile things. It's light. It's sound. It's food. And yet, he picks up and starts, he strums, the, he plays the mandolin, which would be kind of a weird thing for touch. Yes. He drinks wine at dinner, which mm. should not go with the taste buds type of thing. They make, so my, my kind of sub, humble opinion, right from the get-go, he goes through this litany of things that, this, this affliction that bothers him. Right off the bat, I think he's crazy. There's no... To me, there's no ambiguity. There's no kind of like, it's so extreme that you're like, this guy's nuts. This like, guy is crazy. Like Chuck in uh, Better Call Saul. With right. His sensitivity to electricity. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. There's no, and I thought it might be a little more interesting to slowly like reveal that, that tease yeah. that out a bit because. I don't think you're supposed to think anything other than Roderick Usher is insane right from the get-go. Yeah. I agree. And, you know, uh, all right. I, well, I don't well, know if actually, I'm reading too no, much I, into I, that or I, I not. I think, actually, uh, I'll pause there. I, I think that, y- yes, at a certain level, he's, he's insane and, and you need to see that. But I don't think that his ailments are meant to be purely psychosomatic or made up because I do think that um, Madeline, the, the intended message that she is not particularly well. And I think she does go mad at the end of the movie. Now there may be specific reasons for it, but (laughs) you think, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, um, but I do think that, that you are to believe that, that he is in fact, Enfeebled. There, there. Yeah, I'm not. I, I'm not so sure. I'm saying that you're supposed to believe it's 100. percent Oh, kind okay. of gotcha. psychosomatic. But I think you're supposed to take away from this, as Philip apparently doesn't initially, is that this guy truly is nuts. Yeah. Regardless of of his supposed affliction. That this guy is kind of truly insane. I also like the um, 
now the and, and maybe at the time it was, it was subtle maybe it's done more subtly and i i think i I think I read it is a short story. I can't remember. Yes. It, it's not a novel. novella. It's, no, yeah. it's a novella or, or long short story. I think it might just be a, a short story. I mean, be I, I believe I read it years ago, so so long ago that I remember nothing but the names. Right. Um the house itself sits now precariously in the middle of a what would you say a swamp, a marsh, um yeah. Uh, well, it's a uh, dead. It's a dead area. It's a dead area, but it's also like there's um, like Hell House. There's a tarn. He yes. calls the 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 stagnant pool of water that kind of surrounds the house a tarn. Um, but the house itself, apparently, uh, like maybe it requires more subtle analysis. But there's a huge crack down the outside wall of part of the house as if the house is a metaphor for the family and vice versa. The house as well as the family are cracked and falling apart. Yes. Uh, Yes. That crack was so big it was funny. Yes. (laughs) The house keeps rumbling and and shaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all about to fall apart. (laughs) Yeah. And it's not even like subtle. The guy says the house is shifting. But there's like what a good, good, you know, three, four, five minutes of them Shifted. shaking the camera to yes, um, and the and Bishop tells uh, Philip Winthrop, oh, it's just a house, Bristol, <laughs> Bristol, it's just a house settling. Don't worry about it. The house looks like it's about two hundred and fifty years old, but it's just settling. Yeah, no worries. What um, what do you what would you like to um, anything strike you as? interesting stood out to you so it it has i mean it it plays to that kind of uh that one conceit here or conceit that one plot point here which is roderick believes the family is doomed the house is doomed and it really doesn't stray from that there, and it's just a conflict between him and Mark Damon's character and um, with Myrna Fahey caught in between and Bristol, the, the, the loyal servant to the family who do, who's, who's fairly, I, I like this. He, he's not a bad guy. Right? Kind of hard. It seems a very kind-hearted individual but he's been with him for 60 years right exactly and so he was a kid he says yeah and so he's just he just serves them and and that's that in the you know good tradition of the service right the servants and you know they are almost in some senses slaves to their families um so it's this really nice compact thing and you don't get distracted with anything silly right it's nice and focused and compact. And I like that about it. I liked the growing, um, uh, you know, the slow burn and the slow disclosure, right. Of what's going on. Um, so that you, so that you get it. I like the general 
creepiness of the sets, of, of the music, of the storytelling, of the characters. Um, I love Vincent Price's presence in this. He just just truly he does dominate he really, everything. He really, he really does. <laughs> it just, it's impossible to take your eyes off of him. Um, you know, we're going to get into, spo- I mean, it's an old story, so are we okay with talking about the ending? Uh, it's uh, almost 200 years old. I think we could talk about <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Good. So <clears throat> the, you know, this, and this is true of a lot. I mean, I, I think we, we're so used to, you know, elevating layers of shock in, in horror stories and films over the past 50 years, 100 years, whatever it is. I mean, I, I think you and I once a long time ago and talking about uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the, you know, the book, and the horror of it being that this guy could turn into this thing that would trample a young girl, right? Just, you know, inadvertently at first run over her on the street, right? Yep. And that that was the horror. And that was the thing that was, you know, the terror. Whereas, you know, modern horror notions are, you know, much, 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 much more extreme than that including things like body horror, as well as the psychological, right? All this stuff that just didn't really, didn't exist. And that's true, of course, of Poe, who was writing in the 19th century. And so this, the horror of this story is that uh, the heroine, Myrna Fahey, Madeline, the character Madeline, um, we're not really sure exactly what happens, but she... Um, we kind of find out later she goes into a catatonic state. Not really, not really clear an argument with her brother after an argument with her brother, which is why we don't really know the cause, whether it was just her natural weakness because she's evidently, you know, getting sick along with everything else with the family in the house or because Roderick did something, but she goes to a catatonic state and, Roderick says, and he may believe it. We don't know really that she's actually dead because he's insane. Because he's insane. And then they're they've got the body laid out in a coffin, and they're they're praying. and And this was, and this is kind of when you know how insane Vincent Price's character is. She's lying there in what we now know as a catatonic state, and her hand moves. And instead of being excited and happy that she's still alive, Vincent Price quickly just closes the coffin. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to see here. I, I can't bear to look at her anymore. I can't bear to look at her anymore. Come on. I can't bear. Let's go. Let's go, Philip. I'll buy you a drink. Right. And so he buries her, or not, not really buries her, but puts her in the family crypt in the basement. Um, and, right. Down, down in the family crypt, like Winterfell. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, uh, uh, the, the the remainder of the movie is kind of the consequence of that, which is she gets out and is now crazy, presumably because, because her brother has tried to bury the family crypt. Well, here's a question for you. Um, here's where what I don't, and maybe it it it's explained more in the book. Maybe I missed it. Was Roderick's intention to keep her in the crypts? until she suffocated, died, or whatever? Or was he going to kind of revive her after Philip left? Oh, I mean, no. I'm, he was going to kill her. That was it. It was yeah. like, it's going to happen anyways. Yeah. May's, this is a good time to say. Yep. Okay. 
Yeah. All right. That's so how he, I took it. That's yes, how I took it. That, I didn't think it was any. Yeah. That's what I thought, but I, I just wanted I'd be much happier if Roderick was just kind of a, a socio, kind of a, a psychopath rather than a, a murderous psychopath. But no, no, definitely yeah. murderous psychopath. Now I yeah. think he, yeah, because he's, I mean, he, he, believes, says, he, he does say so afterwards, yeah, right? He does, when he's he, confronted by Winthrop or whatever his name is. Well, that's when he, the jig is up, though. That's when the jig is yeah. up. Yeah, but he admits it. But I'm wondering if is the the impetus. We're supposed to believe, or at least you can make the argument, the impetus is good in the mind, in the adult mind of Roderick Usher. He's not doing anything in his mind that's bad. He's essentially putting her out of her misery. And I think we're supposed to think that's sincere because he is, he, he is insane. I think he is sincere in, in thinking that he is doing the right thing. I don't know if I don't know if he believes that he's being good, right? Well, I think I, I don't I, think, I think he I don't think he believes he's being cruel to his sister. I think he believes he's doing it for her own good. Uh, yes, I believe that's true. Yes. All right, all right, and and I think that's what we're supposed. That's what the audience is supposed to think, right? I, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That he is sincere, but that he's of course clearly Crazy. mad. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I thought the the interactions between um, Philip and Madeline there was a couple nothing nothing stood out to me as of particular interest. She's he's taking control. He wants to leave with her. She wants to go. Yep. Um, and I didn't think you know there was nothing of. Nothing stood out to me in, in their interactions as, oh, that's kind of, it, it was all seemed kind of standard. Well, you may expect in, uh, from a relationship in 1839 between a man and a woman, he's in charge, he's in control, right. yep. he, want, he, he has certain expectations, and he essentially really doesn't listen to her when she tries to explain, she, you know, her I really shouldn't go. Yeah, I, I really shouldn't leave. Of course, yeah. she's wrong. She sure as hell should leave, and right. she should should never. Have... <laughs> well, she should leave. But but here's the question. I mean, if she if she, do do you do you think that she isn't sick, physically or mentally, both, either. Well, physically, I don't think we're supposed to get the so. So they're going to leave. Philip is packing to leave. They're going to leave kind of in a hurry. They're not going to like rush out in five minutes, but it's like, Madeline, go. And she wants to leave. Pack up. We're out of here. He's packing. Here's an argument between Roderick and Madeline. He can't get into the bedroom, but he hears the argument. And then there's dead silence when he walks in. Madeline's catatonic, supposedly dead. Roderick's standing at the window. There's nothing physically... Mike. Yeah, there's a um, Amber Alert. What is that? You don't know what an Amber Alert is? Somebody, they believe someone took a nine-year-old girl. Oh, oh, an Amber Alert. Yeah, oh. an Amber Alert. Um, yesterday, 
She hasn't been seen. So 645 Saturday night at Moreau State Park. So they believe she was snatched. Oh, that's terrible news. That's awful. Yeah. And they think it's a stranger because she was camping with her mother and father and family and oh, friends. Jesus yeah. Christ. Not good. <clears throat> so that was just another um another update. Um, mm. So there's nothing physically by appearance wrong with her. She's not bleeding. She hasn't been beat up, strangled, you know. Right, right. So obviously she does suffer, you know, from catalepsy or, or catatonic state. She sleepwalks, we understand. But I don't think there's anything physically wrong with her. Um, apparently she's in Boston for a bit and everything's fine. I, I think her, yeah, her yeah, stuff yeah. is just the old kind of suffocation of her, of her brother's kind of mania. I think that's a large part of it, but I, I personally think that I, I kind of like the, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being silly and all, but I do like the idea that there is this family sucks family and doomed. Um, uh, I kind of, I, 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 I did not. Yes, definitely. There's a degree of um, just a matter of control, right? Brotherly control. And that that's a big part of what's going on. But I, but I think the end of the movie when she goes mad is because I think that is a indication of the fact that Roderick is right about the family. Maybe not completely, maybe not 100%. Maybe there are causes for the things that they do. Just like here he is, this crazy person ends up murdering his sister, as well as Bristol, as it turns out, and himself. But he does it because he has a reason for it, right? That may be crazy and all, but he himself, right, has this reason. And she goes mad, not just because she's an usher, but because her brother has buried her. Right in the family crypt prematurely, so I think that my <laughs> I feel like you're glossing over the fact that he buried her prematurely <laughs> and she woke up. <laughs> but I don't think so. I think that you know it was there and it was just these things kind of brought them out. Right, it it his actions brought out her. Uh, latent usherness, right? Huh. Is kind of how I, I view it. Interesting. So There's that little bit of, you know, nature nurture sort of thing. I, I kind of dis, I think I disagree. Now, okay. she may have had a, you know, what would they call huh. it back then? A delicate, you know, right. Idea. But just again, a subjective. If I woke up the way she did, um, I don't think you would go mad. Oh, that particular thing. Um, I mean, and she went mad. I well, mean, she didn't go yes, that weepy. Well, she went mad. She has to go mad for the story. She does go mad. This is true. Right, right. I mean, she goes totally mad. But the one thing that, if there's anything that could get me to that point, um, oh, obviously exaggerated for the film. Mm. Um. The claustrophobic, like the older I get, the more claustrophobic I get. It's the, mm. it's the strangest thing mm. that could drive what what would be for me mad. Like I'd want to, I'd throttle whoever did that to me as she does. And yes, she she yes, but she also throttles Winthrop. <laughs> but 
Well, because he tries to stop her from throttling Roger, <laughs> who deserves who deserves a good a good very good throttling. Um, yeah, no, and I always like to talk about these types of thing within the world of the book, and not say the writer had to do this for the story. So, yes, but one imagines there's probably not a similar situation that Philip would have put her in to bring that out. Because <laughs> Philip does seem like a decent chap. Yes, yes, true. True. Um, interesting. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Maybe that's that's a good. I, I hadn't thought. I haven't thought about whether there's the latent kind of um, usherness. Usherness within her absent a very spark, very extraordinary trigger. Yeah. That's not the usual. <laughs> That's not like your drunk dad comes home, he's emptied the bank account, and your college money's <laughs> gone. <laughs> her brother tries to murder her by burying her alive. Yeah. Not That's cool. Bad. All I'm saying, not cool. Not cool. <laughs> I'm against it. <laughs> um, yeah, so interesting. Interesting. But maybe, possibly, there is some... that. And by the way, that to me is why I really like this, is because I thought they really trod that line nicely, right? I mean, you have him talking about, my family is full of evil people. It has to stop. But it has to stop by my hands doing an evil thing. And yeah, and I think it also is interesting because, like any, any, you know, you know, it's a fall of the house of Usher, Edgar Allan Poe. It's a it's a classic for a reason. Yeah. yeah. Is it a self fulfilling prophecy that if he had not done that, she actually would have been fine? Right. Right. And um, you don't, and you don't know. Or would she have been fine until you know Winthrop does does something terrible, right? And then she decides to burn down the house or something. Right? Exactly. The um, and that's that's exact. The house in the struggle, the house gets set set on fire. Yes. And the only one who gets out I, for a minute there, I thought Bristol was going to make it, but Bristol gets. Burned he up goes down with the, the other ship, ship. Yeah. because yeah. she goes insane. Yes, she looks like oh, she with the hair and the face, bloodshot eyes, and the eyes. I thought looking yeah. at like a hammer vampire coming yeah. at you type of thing. Yeah, so she's like gone. Yeah, she's gone anyways. Like there's no coming yeah. back for her as yeah. she tries to as she tries to murder her brother. Rightly so, in my opinion. Right. The house catches on fire, burns down, and Philip is the only one who gets out. And as he, as he um, is walking away, we see uh, at the very end of the film, <clears throat> the whole house of Usher is swallowed by the swamp, the tarn, the lake, right. the pond, whatever. Yes. Um, that's really about it. I yeah. mean, there's a lot more, not a lot more, but there's some other stuff in there. But that's that. That's kind of like the highlights. Yeah, 
No. And which is why I think we covered why I enjoyed it. Why I thought it was I thought it was good and loved I love the crazy artwork. I, I I love this dynamic of, you know, are they are they terrible because they're ushers or are they terrible because they're doing terrible things and fulfilling the notion that it's because they're ushers? Um uh all very, you know, which is, you know, just a wonderful little, you know, twist in there in terms of the story and that you just don't really know. I mean, it leaves you with those questions, which is why I, I really, I really liked it. I thought it was, thought it was good. A little got, bit too long, but good. Okay. So I got a couple, uh, you know, things to discuss about the movie, but before we kind of wrap up with those, yeah, this was, this was um, <clears throat> produced and directed by Roger Corman. Yes. He's still with us. He's 97 years old. Well, he's still with us as of last night. Yeah. Um, who knows, right? But interesting, fascinating guy. If you have seen The Godfather, he is Senator number two in The Godfather 2. Um, when Michael Corleone is testifying and Tom Hagen is saying they owe this committee owes an apology. Yes. <clears throat> um, he was an actor. He initially started. He was that... also, by the way, he had bit parts in Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Philadelphia. Yep. And Apollo 13. Yes. That, that kind of um, that was new to me. That was interesting. So he started yeah. out as an actor, got into directing, ultimately got into. No, he started out in the mailroom at MGM Studios. But he did do acting, right? Initially. Uh, I think he, I think he did a little bit of acting, yeah. but his, but he was like an engineer, and and he went to work at some engineering firm, and after three days, he, he went to his boss and said, "I made a really big mistake. I quit," yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and decided to get into the into for, the film business. For me, he's a he's a really fascinating guy because I don't see. I went through his list of stuff, and it's yeah. whether he produced it or directed it, it's mostly B kind of stuff. Yeah. And some of it's like deep B movies, like the Beast from whatever Fathoms. I mean, it's real kind of like second reel or 50s drive-in type of stuff. But Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was also responsible for, uh, uh, in the United States, for distributing European films like Fellini and Bergman and Truffaut and Kurosawa. He was, he was um, doing that. He got into directing and producing. And even though he did some studio stuff here and there, I admire him because he really was doing, even though he was making like B pictures, Death Race 2000, Battle Beyond the Stars. Battle Beyond the Stars was one of the post Star Wars movies. They were all kind of Slumber Party Massacres, part two. two and part three. Yeah, well, part three is very derivative of part two. It's almost a direct ripoff. Yeah. But he was doing things on his own terms. Yes. That's that's kind of what I admire. It's like, no, I'm not making Lawrence of Arabia. But Well, this is a perfect, I think the movie we just discussed is a perfect example. Yeah. $300,000, was even, for, even back in 1960, was not a huge movie budget. So instead of trying to do some crazy science fiction you know, uh, some crazy science fiction epic. He does a very intimate, 
four person movie that what utilizes three, four, five sets. Yeah. And that's it. So he fits the story to the budget and doesn't try to and it and it works, but he's really doing stuff on his own terms, which I always admire. I think the yep. Corman's the type of guy who's like I'd rather back produce Battle Beyond the Stars than work for MGM and be told kind of what to do, when to do, and how to do it. And I think that's fantastic. And I uh, couldn't couldn't agree with you you more. What a tremendous career! Just you know, starting in the forties in the mailroom. Um, that I did not know. That that is this basically guy, this could, could be until, a movie about this guy yes. intertwined with the history of Hollywood. Yes, 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 absolutely. And I mean, he was. I think he was producing films as as recently as four years ago. I think I think there's some fairly recent stuff out there. Yeah. So he's 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 been, you know, active up into his 90s, I think, you know, at, at least. Um, and I think the thing he, I don't want to step on what you're about to say. Good. No, no, I was just going to say and you can follow up. Ultimately, his legacy is giving a number like an amazing number of young directors and actors and actors but i'm thinking yeah i saw the list of actors but i'm thinking this is a guy and and these people credit him it's not like he's he's taking credit credit him Uh, and this is uh this is just the six or seven ron howard martin scorsese jonathan demi one of my personal favorites john sales Mm -hmm. james cameron and francis ford coppola all kind of cut their teeth with Roger Corman saying, like, here's a budget, here's your crew, blah, 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 go to it. Spielberg, too, I think. I think the you're duel. right with Duel, yes. Yeah. yeah, he was a big, yeah. I mean, he was, he seemed to be a ment. he seemed to be. And they the all admit Yeah. And yeah, no, se- no one says he's full of shit. Everyone no, says, yeah, yeah, like, no. Roger Corman gave, gave me my first break. He's, he's like the definition of mensch. He's just, he is just a a remarkable person, good person, great mentor. It seems like to just about everybody. I mean, I don't, I don't know this, but I didn't see a bad word about him, you know, anywhere, no real controversies that I know what I look at. You know what I look at Dale and it means nothing. Okay. But to me, it's a, it's circumstantial evidence of a good, just circumstantial, right? It's of a good, solid, decent, grounded person. Yeah, I think he's been married to the same woman. He was married to the same woman forever. Yeah, she may have passed away. I mean, he is ninety-seven. Yeah, but he's not. When you look at spouse, it's not like seven people listed. Right. And I could be reading too much into that, but I think that it could be a sign of stability, decent character. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I, you know, I just kind of, kind of came to me like on the spur of the moment, but it would be a good biopic. Oh, it would it would be fascinating to see him how he made, how he was able to do. It. You know, he wrote a book called "How I Made a Hundred Movies in Hollywood and Never Lost a Dime." Yeah, and he he wrote it. I think in the nineties this, this came out. And when you think about that era that he was working through, you know, the fifties, I think the sixties, and into the seventies, which is when he 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 started to move away from. I think he stopped directing in the seventies and mm-hmm. just was producing from from there on. 
Um, and it looked like he was winding down on his directing um, in that period. But when you take a look at that list of people that he influenced or mentored, um, the movies that he made, um, it the people that he worked with. I mean, it was great. It's just a who's who of that that period. Yeah, I mean, you know, just a remarkable, remarkable you know, life. You know how they do like the coaching tree, like. Billy Martin was a man was a coach for this manager who was a coach for you know and they go back yep. like yep. Billy Martin is a direct descendant of you know yeah, right. John McGraw type of thing. Right. Can you? I don't. Does anyone have? He's the common ancestor of so many people. I, yes, and I I think too he wasn't at, at, at least in like the sixties and seventies he I don't think he was a guy who just he wasn't the producer. Who just cut the check? He provided kind of guidance yeah, yeah, and and yeah. moral support and things like that. To I don't know, like even if it was just Scorsese and Coppola, it'd be kind of interesting. But you throw in Cameron, Sale, yeah. like him or not, I mean yeah. James Cameron has made some of the most uh, influential movies ever. Yep. Sales is an artist. Demi's done some wild stuff. Scorsese, of course, Ron Howard, yeah. Coppola, Spielberg. I mean, yeah. Spielberg alone would be yeah. another one. So such an – and I was so kind of – I don't know what his current, like, health state is now, but it was kind of – I don't know, kind of made me happy that he was still around. I hope he's kind yeah. of healthy and mentally and physically kind of kind of healthy. Um, and it's just – but the thing that I admire is he he wasn't how do I put this? The people just wanna I hate Hollywood. I'm never gonna work for MGM. I'm gonna live in Tallahassee, Florida and make movies on my phone or my you know, my, my shitty little camera and fuck but because I'm an artist. He, he straddles the I'm my a lot of my movies are going to be I'm going to work out deals where my movies are distributed by, you know, legit distributors, uh, whether it's Fox, MGM, whatever. But I'm doing a lot of this stuff on my own. He kind of straddles a line, right? He's not yeah. pretentious. It's like, I want to make my own movies. I want to so, do it, you know? Yep. No, I mean, I, I'm going to change topics slightly, but I want to talk about Mark Damon, the actor who played Winthrop. Yeah, he he because does, as he's done a lot out, of production stuff. He? I think that he and, and um, uh, um, uh, I, I think he is the he is the inheritor of that um, Roger Corman kind of attitude because he has a similar sort of producing history. It's Younger, huge. It was huge, wasn't it? It's 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 very significant. It's some really interesting it, stuff. And very and up I, to, almost up to date, right? Yes. Again, he's still he's also still alive, um, but he's an actor. He he actually went and did some spaghetti westerns in in Italy as an actor, but got into producing. And I think one of the first things that he did was um, he acted as the producer for the at least the U S distribution of Das Boat, the Wolfgang Peterson. Yes. Right. Saw that. Yeah. And what's really interesting about it. it and, and you can, it, it, there's evidently a, someone wrote a book with him about his life, which I, I don't have the name of. I, I wish I did. I, I tried searching for it real quickly before we did this, but I couldn't find it. 
but one of the it, he one of the things he he like Corman I think was really hands on on all this. So when they were doing what he said was when when they he he heard about this, someone told him about it. He said, "Oh, that sounds actually really interesting." And so they said, "Yeah, let's." And then he he saw it and he was really impressed by how all of the characters, even the very secondary characters, all had characters, right? That it was a it was a complete picture, right? He didn't just have the extras being just the extras. They this, they kind of all had. This is dust boat. Dust boat, yeah. So and, they were more than one dimensional. Yeah, and so he was very he he got very interested in it. So he talked to I can't remember who it was, you know, some distribution company about it, and they said, oh well, we need to we need to get it dubbed into English. <laughs> and he said, oh god, really? Because. Uh, uh... Because well, because so, Americans can't read subtitles. Well, well, evidently, but and he, as an actor, right? He said because uh, he, you know, everything is dubbed all the time, right? You never, you know, when you see a movie, you're never hearing the simultaneous speech. It it's all voiceovers, right? That the actors go into the studio later and Sometimes. do the yeah yeah yeah. yeah. So well, especially so he, more so back then than now. Yeah, and so he was really hesitant. He said, "Okay, I'll I'll do it." but give me an extra $150,000. And they said, well, well, why? Because I'm going to do, do it right. Because <laughs> I'm going to do it right. And what yeah. he did, okay, what he did, he got all of the German actors to do the dubbing of their own voices. Because they all speak English, right? Because they all speak English. <laughs> and they really worked hard on the script to find the right words in the dialogue to match what was going on in German so that it it would kind of fit better and that it would be hard to really see the difference right in terms of what they're saying the and movement it, of the, the of the lips what the, the, it's yeah. in our it's an it's really there's two not to interrupt sorry to interrupt but there it's my understanding there's two ways to do it there's the quick and easy way we just dub in whatever and you don't care about the lips right and then there's this very like it's an art into itself of fitting the 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 dubbing into the lip movement and that's a whole like whole yeah. other level of, of stuff going on yeah and that's what he that's what he Crazy. did with dust boat and what? he and he um went on to produce um he went on to produce clan of the cave bear lost boys bat 21 the never-ending story nine and a half weeks monster i mean you know you may not like all these movies but no he's a, he made he's some a major, he's a major player yeah, major, major, major guy. And I heard an interview with him, and he seems like just a, a very pleasant guy. He he talked about um, nine and a half weeks in particular, and how difficult um, Mickey Rourke was. Well, <laughs> not, not, I shouldn't say that. That's that's not right. How Mickey Rourke's version of the character did not work, and it was it was a terrible onset. He was very cruel and and difficult as a character and it, and I, I know nothing about the movie. I've never seen it, but evidently his character in the movie, as it ultimately came out was much more bright and upbeat and, and likable. And he said what they had to do with the movie is after they filmed it, they showed it to audiences and nobody liked it. I mean, like nobody liked it because they hated him, the mm -hmm. character. And so they went back and they used spare film, right, of him laughing, you know, when he didn't know the camera was on, right, or after the shot ended and he smiled or did something, right? 
And they took those things and they edited those things into the movie to make his character more likable. Fascinating. It, yeah, really it was just really interesting. And he's got all these wonderful, he talks about, he has all these wonderful stories about, about his life. And he seems like a really... Well, he just seems like guy, a so, so. Brooklyn kid made good. Yeah. You know? Just, yeah. Just, which I've always found, you know, it's funny. When I was in law school down in, um, not quite near, I won't exactly say where, but not quite New York City. It's very interesting as an upstate kid from a fairly metropolitan area. Um, I noticed a certain thing. Now, this is not, this is not, this is a, a gross generalization, as, but. Anecdotal experience. It's just my own experience at one particular law school was the kids, the kids, the guys, the girls from the more Jersey, mm-hmm. Bronx, Brooklyn, Manhattan, Queens, whatever. Uh, no matter, maybe a little rough around the edges, whatever, but give you the shirt off their back. The guys and gals from Long Island and other places, just, just not a good experience with a lot of, a, a lot of those people. So you can imagine this kid from Brooklyn appreciating. Yeah. Um, you know, but I really do. I want to go back to really, really quick because there's, there's, there's the burn it. So it's a delicate balance, right? There's the burn it all down types. I'm ahead of my time. I'm so brilliant. They don't get me, so I'm just walking away, and I'll make my crappy little, you know, homemade films, and I'll, I'll put it off. But then there's the people who are able to do what they want within the system. Mm-hmm. And that's a much more delicate balance that requires a lot of subtlety, cleverness, and intelligence. And you get the best of both worlds. You get kind of doing what I want, but guess what? Warner Brothers is distributing it. Mm-hmm. And that's more interesting to me. Anyone can walk away and be a rebel. But to do what you want and live how you want within the system to me is like genius. Yeah. Because you get the benefits of I'm being paid. Like I'm in the system. Yep. I'm getting all the advantages of being in the system, but they're kind of letting me do what I want because I'm bringing things in under budget. I'm not asking for a ton and I'm doing things timely, getting it done and it's making money. I don't care if it's making money at the drive-ins. I don't care if it's making money because a bunch of 18 or 19 year olds are going to see it on date night because it's kind of like a, a gore fest, whatever. And that's a much harder dance than just turning your back on, on yeah. Hollywood. Yeah. And it's absolutely. A, and the other thing, the Das Boat thing is, and I don't want, I hate to digress, but I always wanted to mention this, the Das Boat thing where you mentioned about the duck. So I fancy myself a writer, amateur, I may, I may I've made money at it, but not a lot. <laughs> so I guess I guess I can call myself a, an unsuccessful professional writer. <laughs> I think my my book made a hundred dollars. I think after all everything was said and done. So I guess I'm a professional, but not go. successful, right? Yeah. Um, and and some other endeavors, but um. So I always had this like when I was younger. I had this attitude about um, uh, kind of projecting myself into the directing world. I was like actors shut the fuck up 
I wrote the script, say the lines, let's move on. That was years ago, right? And then I started reading scripts. And the and it's amazing to me how the the best scripts, I don't care what it is, you name it, the best script, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Hangover, no matter how good the script is, it's so flat that you it, you have to you have to read a bunch of scripts to realize what actors and actresses bring to the scripts and until you until you actually see the script on the page you don't it, it's hard to understand how flat it can be until yeah. these these um, professionals bring their own spin talk to the director about how they want to you know which angle they want to tackle it from let's try this let's try that. And bring that, you know, writing a novel, it's you and ultimately, hopefully, the reader. But it made me realize that, like, movies are, no matter what, a collaborative thing. Yeah. Right down from the sound, the cinematography, the editing especially, to the actor saying, like, I think, you know, before it's like, you know, uh, uh, Hitchcock. You know, he's famously said, um, I was accused of saying actors uh, are are cattle. I was misquoted. What I probably said was actors should be treated like cattle, (laughs) (laughs) which I'm sure he was just having a good time, you know. But when you look at this stuff, it's like it's amazing, which makes me think about Das Boat and his insistence on getting. Because yeah, you've seen bad dubs, right? It yeah, just takes, yeah. completely yeah. takes you out of the movie. Yeah. Because yeah. these actors and actresses are bringing so much to it. And it's such a collaborative effort that when... It's amazing that there's so many good movies at the end of, at, at the, end of the day. Yeah. Because yeah, it, yeah. It, yeah. so much can go wrong. So but much can go wrong, yeah. That is yeah. so interesting about Mark Damien. I did look yeah. and he has a ton. It looks like he was kind of... He must have done something right. Because he seemed to have got gotten out of the acting gig into the producing gig fairly young. Yeah. It was in the, like right around the time that um, dust boat came out. So it was in the yeah. late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. That transition. Yeah. All right. Um, so tell we... me, tell me, yeah, go to price. You want to go to price? Well, I was actually going to go to Matheson who wrote oh, the screenplay. I was going to go real quick. Fahey, sad story. Oh um, yes. Yes. Let's yes. Very sad um, story. Yeah. Uh, seems like a, competent capable actress but unfortunately died at age not too long after this at age of 40 from cancer yeah yeah lots of television work some movie work um but evidently was struggling with with uh with cancer for a fairly long time i don't know exactly how long but yes to come to it at 40 which is really very distressing to sit to 40 yeah Yeah. way too young she seemed um she wasn't a huge standout, but she seemed a workmanlike, competent actress. Yeah, and she was she was she was on a television series, I think, for a year, and she did she had recurring roles in in a couple here and there. So she was definitely, you know, she was definitely you know living the the life of 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 you know those actors that that I love, right? Those character actors that you just saw that all over that, the place. that work for a living. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I love him. But I want to talk to just briefly about Matheson. Yeah, sure. We've, we've mentioned Matheson a ton, and um, you know Don't he did one of his novels. 
we did right. We did one of his novels. So he wrote the screenplay here. But I just want to talk a little bit about his career kind of up into the 60s, because I think it, it, it's really interesting. As I saw this, he so his break breakout was really in the 50s. And um, that's when he wrote The Shrinking Man, turned into the movie The Incredible Shrinking Man. He wrote I Am Legend. He wrote a number of short stories. And it's things started to, you know, pop with him in the 50s. But the 60s particularly in the movies when he just kind of that was his he was working all of the time so there were eight in this corman post cycle movies they did they did usher pit in the pendulum um the premature burial or corman did premature burial tales of terror the raven the haunted palace the mask of red death and the tombs of lygia which I, i i don't know so of those eight Matheson wrote four. He did this. He did Pit in the Pendulum, Tales of Terror, and The Raven, which is which is a, a comedy. He did tons of Twilight Zone episodes and a whole bunch of westerns. Um, uh, wrote for some you know some television. Wrote some western you know novels and and stories. So the '60s for him, this was kind of like peak. Um, peak Matheson, although I think that it probably extended well into the 70s in terms of where he was at his his prowess from a writing perspective anyway. Um, just to, And just a reminder of just what a prolific guy he was and how, how good he was at what he did. Um, just a, a fantastic person to have working on, uh, on this, kind of a, this kind of a movie. Um, just always got to give, give credit to Matheson whenever I talk about him. Cause I just, yeah. I'm such a fan. He's great. Yeah. Okay. So Vincent Price, um, as I said before, oh, I will say about Matheson, he always oh, starts yeah. me. I don't know this for a fact. He should, like if I call Matheson say, yeah, it's January. Uh, here's what we're doing. I need, can I have a script by November? You get a feeling like I'd have a script by November with all, oh, yeah. like no excuses. Yeah. And it'd be, even if it needed like a a, a check or two, it'd be a a workmanlike script, and I wouldn't get like oh, you know I got this going on, and can I have an extra two months? He was he was a professional writer. Yeah, yeah. Corman said maybe might be an exaggeration, but Corman said I never rewrote, I never had to rewrite a Matheson script. I, he said he'd get me a script and I'd film it. Um, but uh, yeah, real professional. Um, love Matheson. Um, yeah, let's talk. I know we're we're Vin, a little Vin, bit long here. No, that's all right. Vin, Vinny Price. Yeah, Vincent Price. I mean, I don't want I, to talk too much about him, only because I think ultimately he deserves an entire podcast. Probably, probably, I, absolutely. Just an iconic guy. I mean, I grew up seventies, eighties. I said before, he was always that icon of of kind of the campy horror from the sixties and. And he was. I mean, he did all these movies. I mean, he did. I don't know all of those. Can I inter- <laughs> can I interrupt real, like yeah. real quick? My first introduction to Vincent Price, there was two. Then I was when I was older, I would go back to like House on Haunted Hill and all mm-hmm. those stuff that made the fly, the stuff that made him famous. Yeah. But I, I don't remember the details, so I'm kind of uh, paraphrasing here. But he was on Saturday Night Live. Where he's like at the dinner table, it just the way he says things, like he's saying nothing ominous or evil or anything, but it's like, 
pass the potatoes, please. And he just does it in that voice. So he's saying completely normal things in that very Vincent Price voice. Yes. And that was like the stick. Yes. And then, of course, he did the narration for Thriller, the Michael Jackson video. Yes, that's right. He did. And that those two may have been actually, okay, who's this guy, Vincent Price? And then I went back. Then uh, ultimately, you, go, you end up going back. I'm sorry, say that again? Well, those those two things may have been my introduction to Vincent Price. Oh, then okay. I went then I went back to like got it, got it, got it. House and on Haunted Hill and yeah, what yeah. what kind of made him that icon. Yeah, I don't know what where my first introduction to him was. It just seems like he was always known to me. I'm sure it was through my mother who introduced us to those horror movies from the fifties and sixties. She was always a big fan. Um and he was just I don't know, for my your mine your he was just it's ubiquitous I mean, he, he was yeah he was he was the and you'd know it i mean he was unmistakable and the voices of the voice, voice like, the, the so face you, the, it, it was like him and like boris karloff for the previous interview, just the voice you, you heard the voice yeah. and you know exactly who it was yeah and just a couple of in case people don't know some people may um he went to yale studied english and art history um, he became an art collector. He was also a, uh, an accomplished chef, wrote many, 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 many cookbooks, um, and also, I think, did some shows, did some, you know, cooking shows. Right. Um, he, uh, he, he was, but he was, he was really big in art, and evidently in the late 60s, I think. He, 70s, 60s, 70s, yeah. He did this deal with sears did you yep, yep. see this kind of so, like uh, art for the common man <laughs> yeah exactly he helped them pick the things that they should do prints of to sell at sears which i thought was, right. was was really great and he was one of the first people who i i understood was gay is it it, it came out at some point i can't remember exactly when but i think it was when i was still young i'm sure it was when i was still young that it was kind of acknowledged that he was he was gay, and it was one of the, he was one of the first kind of public figures for me anyway. That that was an acknowledgement. Um, that that I don't know, but I thought that at least a f- kind of in a more formal way that came out after his death. Well, I think I, it, I, I, I think it formally yes, but it could have been like then, one of those like badly kept. Secrets. I think it was because I remember as I'm not saying in the 70s, but at fairly young. Right. It, it was one of the first kind of public figures where that was kind of uh, I, I became aware of it. Um, yeah, just really interesting, interesting life he had came from a well to do family. Well, I love the um, fact he's he's like the scion of a baking powder fortune. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, that, <laughs> That warped into like the National Candy Company. Oh, did it um, really? Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, that. yeah, it was like if I was the the son of the National Candy Company, like I'd have dentures and like just be like nine hundred pounds. <laughs> and have a, give me more. But you're right. He went to Yale. He was into art. He was into culinary studies. Yeah. Interestingly, I found this kind of fascinating, which gives me hope for a whole bunch of people. So in the early 30s, when he went to Germany, he became a very pro-Hitler. Yes, I read this, that he was... Yes, yes. And kind of as a naive young kid. Yeah. 
back in New York, um, once he started hanging with Dorothy Parker, which I found fast, I found fascinating. I did not know he hung with some of the Algonquin Roundtable. Yeah, he flipped and became ultra ultra liberal. He was also gray listed, and right. I had to look this up. Yeah. yeah, did you know what that meant? I did not until I was reading this. Kind of, yeah. I love it. It's like you were prematurely anti-Hitler, right? (laughs) Right. So you you weren't blacklisted. You were just kind of under a cloud of suspicion. Yes. For being an early anti-fascist, which I can't even like. What the fuck was going on back then? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was like you can be anti-Stalin, of course, and hopefully, you know, people were, but. You were a little too first on the bag about anti-Hitler because Hitler was anti, anti-communist. anti So what were you doing so anti-Hitler on all this kind of crap? But fascinating came from a very wealthy Missouri family. Um, and uh, interesting guy. A lot of people just it's, it's funny when I, I used to listen to a podcast and they did a Mount Rushmore of horror. All right, we're all horror fans. And who would you put on the you know, four faces on Mount Rushmore, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And they were debating about, you know, if you put Christopher Lee on, do you have to put Peter Cushing? If you put Bella Lugosi, is it Boris Karloff? But they all agreed. Vincent, Vincent Price. Price was just such a uh, iconic the the look, the voice. Um, never ran from it either. Never kind of tried to distance himself from this genre kind of stuff. No, no, never. And, Even into um, his later career when he'd have small parts here and there, he would he kind of embraced that character of himself. Uh, yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah, I have um, an issue I wanted to raise about this. Okay. Um, let me see. Did I write it down or not? First of all, I think you're right. It, should, it could have been, it never would have made a feature film, but it could have been about five or eight minutes shorter. Yeah. Uh, just because they were going over the same, the same yeah. ground so, so mm-hmm. often. Yep. It's 1960. It, I, I've seen this before in movies where I never got this vibe. I found it weird, but I never got this vibe. Did you get intentionally or unintentionally this overlay of incest about this whole relationship? She acts in certain ways like a survivor of abuse. Yes. Sexual or otherwise. And his constant refrain about loving her, it, it just, I, I, there are movies out there where the, uh, the brothers and sisters inherit from their parents who are dead and they live together. There's no, the uninvited, which is a 1940s kind of ghost story. I think, um, even in, um, uh, dark shadows, uh, I think the patriarch and matriarch of one of the families, their brother and sister, and there's no hint of this, but there, I mean, uh, 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 psych student could have a field day with this movie because I got this like intentional or just underlying like 
is there an ins- was there a non consensual incestuous relationship between Roderick and Madeline? Because she's she's showing signs of a survivor, and he is acting way too. I know it's hid behind our family's evil, our family's awful. It should end, but it was creepy on a on a high level. I, you know, as we talked about before doing this podcast, I was because I hadn't before I watched the movie, I had I had forgotten about it, and I thought that that was a component of it. Of the but movie I, or the story I, of the story, but I did not pick that up in the movie. I really thought of it more as he's got this crazy idea that his you know his blood is bad, family blood is bad, and he's got to, uh, and he loves his sister because it's his sister, and he's got to protect her, but he also knows that she can't have the kind of life that she might like because the family line can't go on. So I did, I did not, I did not quite pick that up. I got it from the controlling, right. All of that. But I did not, I did not get that. I got a vibe of underline. Like if this movie was made today, would they throw an incest storyline? She's fine in Boston. Maybe. She's having a blast in Boston. Yeah. But once she's back, it's like game over. She's back into that whole Roderick Usher kind of craziness. Yeah. The other thing I found fascinating was um, when, or interesting, was when Philip Winthrop is arriving, he is riding a horse through this desolate landscape. Yes. Uh, the mist is rising and he reaches the house of Usher. Which is what? What is that? A matte painting again? Kind of like Probably. a matte painting, but yeah, yeah. 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 With the, but you can't see the the land around it. It's all mist rising and all this kind of thing. Uh, apparently, there was a fire. There was a forest fire in the Hollywood Hills, and uh, the day after, Corman rushed everyone out there. To have, oh, is that right? Yeah, <laughs> to have Mark Damon riding through what was the aftermath of the fire. That's why those trees are kind of burnt and dead and things like that. Yeah. Which I found kind of like very like that's what low budget directors do. <laughs> I found it very clever. That's not bad. Um, okay. June. I think this movie came out June 18th. That's what I saw. I also saw June 22nd, but I'm going to go with the 18th. Um, Paul McCartney, Roger Ebert, Jurgen Habermas, and William Seward all had June 18th as uh, their birthday. Okay. Um, Madison signed Declaration of War against Britain, 1812, June 18th. All right. Sally Ride, Sally Ride. In Space, First American Woman in Space. Uh, 1979, Assault 2, Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty um, was signed. 1815, Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo. And in 1928, Amelia Earhart flew across the Atlantic. Um, Right around that time in 1960, so on June 17th, Ted Williams became the fourth person to have 500 home runs. June 16th, Psycho came out. Limited (laughs) release in New York. Very different kind of horror movie. (laughs) (laughs) On June 7th of that year, a nuclear missile caught fire at McGuire um, Air Force Base in New Jersey. And while there was never any 
danger of an explosion, um, radioactive material was released and had to get buried in some concrete there in New Jersey. Explains a lot about parts of New Jersey. Yep. And on June 6th, Barbara Streisand won her first singing competition (laughs) at a club in Greenwich Village, uh, New York, launching her um, professional her professional career is that june 6 1960 yeah oh my god yeah yeah lots of plane crashes in and around there kind of all over the place we've noted that um air air travel has gotten a whole lot lot safer a lot better yeah what are the top five grossing movies of 1960 i have no uh i can't I did not look this up. I was kind of lazy about this one. Was Lawrence of Arabia in 1960? It was not. And oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I have no so idea. I'll, I'll give you the top five. Yes. And I've got a couple of others that were, were came out that year. So Spartacus was number one. Okay. Psycho was number two. Interesting. Exodus was number three. Paul Newman. Swiss Family Robinson was number four. And the Alamo was number five. The John Wayne Alamo? Yeah, I think so. I'm assuming that's what it was. There's some interesting movies made that that year, um, uh, including um, the movie that was, I think, number six on the list was The Wondrous Life of Katie Wong or something like that. Some very strange Bill Holden movie about someone in Hong Kong. But um, La Dolce Vida. Oh, sure. Uh, Murder Inc. Okay. Um, Peter Falk. Uh, Elmer Gantry. <laughs> That's um, Burt Lancaster. Burt Lancaster. Yep. Inherit the Wind. Spencer Tracy and, uh, and uh, great, great story. Yep. And uh, what's his name? The dancer um, Gene. I see his face. I know Gene. Gene, Gene, Gene Kelly. Kelly. Yeah. Gene Kelly. Um, the original Ocean's Eleven. Right, Magnificent Seven. Uh, yeah, one of my favorites actually. Yep, for a western. Yep, The Apartment. Oh, Um, uh, Jack Lemmon. Yep, which won a lot of awards. Depressing, uh, depressing premise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, The Brides of Dracula with Peter Cushing. That's a good one. Yeah, and uh, the movie The Unforgiven, which um, I just did a quick look at. It was Burt Lancaster, um. And Audrey Hepburn, Audie Murphy, and John Saxon, um, all in, and Lillian Gish, all in it. Um, evidently, difficult, uh, difficult set. Audrey Hepburn broke her back rehearsing a scene, fell off of a, a horse, broke her back, and um, finished filming the movie. But, but really, you know, for obvious reasons, was was very unhappy about it. Um, I just find it amazing that Lillian Gish and John Saxon were in I know, a movie together. Right? <laughs> Directed That's by such... John Huston, of all things, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that was... That's it, a guy... It, I would have liked it if there's... Like, Orson Welles and John Huston are two... Maybe, maybe Bill Wellman. Like, if I go back in time and, like, go out drinking... Oh God! With yeah. with uh, I don't know if Orson Welles was a big drinker, but John Huston was. But yeah. they, they, those are some like really interesting, interesting characters from that time. Yeah. While Bill Wellman was, you know, yeah. a lunatic. Yeah, yeah. And then finally, um, um, we've talked about in the past, kind of um, you know, spinoffs. 
Oh, like uh, fan fiction? Yes. So well, the, I was going to say, like, is this, is this, before you do that, yeah. I, like, one of my questions was, I, I, I couldn't, I didn't have time to make a list, but is, is, where, where, where does this rank as, like, one of the worst experiences of meeting the in-laws? Because <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you something. Uh, I hate to say this. It makes me, I, I I'm actually am, like, in the classical sense, I tend to be a romantic. But I'm not sure I would have made it to the door when <laughs> once I saw the House of Usher's falling down surrounded by five like uh no, madeline i tried to find your i was in the neighborhood i couldn't find your place but i met a girl it's it's me it's not you uh because this has to rank as oh, yeah. one of the worst meet the in-laws ever yes i i i give him credit i don't think i have the the stick to to um madeline uh there's i yeah it's 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 me it's not you yeah um i'm gonna go back to boston that's a good one so mine was um paint by numbers with roderick usher the uh, artwork yeah that's would have been i would have loved to have seen him um teach us all how to paint like that yeah yeah it was good stuff it was interesting it was really was what does um this Roderick or um Philip Winthrop the next day, he just like like he does what I would do, right? He just kind of goes back to Boston and hey, did you see Madeline? No, I couldn't find the place. <laughs> uh, I stayed in an inn. I I looked. They didn't know when. Like I never I actually tried. got to. Couldn't. I never couldn't got to hook up with the ushers at the time, and uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah. So yeah, <laughs> it's the worst, right? It's like I like uh, because the, I don't care who. Like, only a lunatic doesn't realize you marry the family, in in, in a certain sense, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like I'm not sure I'm like going in. <laughs> it's like this is like the desolate, the desolate landscape. I can't see the ground due to the mist. The house is falling apart. There's the weird guy like won't let me in. It's like, oh, you know, there's you know, Madeline was cool and everything, but you know, there's um you know, there's the March sisters, they're pretty cool. Maybe I could go hang with them. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll worm my way to little women and just get the fuck out of this Usher thing. I, I'm yeah. like or after talking to Roderick, even even after I talked to Roderick, I like, hey, don't know like uh i yeah maybe I, maybe I'm not, maybe i'm, I'm not doing your it advice, Roderick. Yeah. I, you know what i think i will leave in the morning Tell you, what, <laughs> you explain to madeline what we talked about <laughs> and i'm just gonna like saddle up my horse and get the hell out of here it's yeah. a, it might be the worst I'm, I'm trying to think like there's funny stuff like meet the fockers and all that kind of or meet the parents and all that stuff, but yeah. like I don't, good on Philip, but I don't know. I think I'm out. Yeah, uh, I think that's all I have, man. Um, I, yeah, I'm glad. No, I, I'm glad I watched it. I was really, it really did strike me as a hammer film. I, 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 I like the hammer films. I appreciate kind of, yeah, what they had to work with and what they accomplished. And this really kind of slides, except for the American accent. You know, you don't have the English kind of that that whole 
the British thing going on in terms of the accents and the language. But when you look at it, I, I was like, Jesus, this, this looks like a Hammer film. And I'm wondering if that's not accent, if that's intentional. Given yeah. by that time, the Hammer films were kind of making uh, a, a lot of money in the U.S., especially in, in drive-ins. Um, yeah, I'm glad I, I'm glad I watched it, you know. I'm always willing to watch anything written by Richard Matheson and Roger Corman's fascinating. Not necessarily one I'll revisit. It's so dark. It is so freaking dark. But I do recall this story only from, I think I told you this on the phone. I seem to recall there was a made-for-TV version that my mom is, oh, fall the, it's Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar Allan Poe, maybe you should watch it. Because she would always refer me, like, not necessarily to books, but, like, if a movie based on a classic was, was they were doing a made-for-TV type of thing and it was going to be on, she'd be like, yeah, you should watch that. You should. Captain's Courageous was one. Oh, yeah. I love that. Movie. Yeah, things like Spencer that. Tracy. And, yeah, and, yeah, and I seem to remember this, too. And I was a little disappointed because, unless it's subtle, you know, I like a little bit of supernatural type of stuff, and this is not. This is clearly kind of like a, a what would you call it? Like a, a psycho, psychological, yeah, more, more psychological, psychological thriller. Very gothic, though. I mean, it's just yeah, it, it oozes the gothic. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. and before we go, I want to like you know, I don't want to talk too much about him because he he again he's somebody who deserves podcasts, but. Not a huge fan of the writing, but that's subjective. But Edgar Allan Poe, born 1809, died 1849, very young. And he's got this crazy kind of life. And if you read the story about who kind of curated his legacy after his death was an enemy. Oh, was that right? Yes. And it had these, like... Oh, he was drunk. He was a drug addict. He was this. He was that. It was all done by an enemy who somehow ended up being being kind of like the uh, uh, biographer, it, it, the yeah. will, being kind of like the owner, the guardian of his intellectual property. It's the weirdest situation, which could could serve as its own podcast. So you have his biographer, his. Um, the person kind of controlling his intellectual property is also this huge distractor detractor writing um, articles in the times and the Baltimore sun and the Washington DC, whatever about what a lunatic madman drunk uh, drug. It's really really So historians are kind of going back to revisit it. He's obviously like, you know, had issues um, of a variety, like a lot of people, but, don't necessarily believe all this other stuff uh, about him being like a chronic alcoholic, drug abuser, and and everything else. So it's that's kind of interesting. But he's like in the. I mean, I'm not a huge fan again, subjective of of that the writing, but considered one of the kind of founders of the gothic fiction, especially in the United States, and considered like the father or at least the grandfather of detective fiction. Yeah. Where the lead is was the murders in the room morgue and, and so really a, a foundational figure in certainly American literature. 
Yeah, it's it's whether you like him or not, he he is. And I think it's probably true. You tell me, you might have a better sense of this, but when it comes to the English language, is there anybody else that early who fills that space? No, I think he was one of the first. And Hawthorne probably, but that was a bit later. Okay, no. but not in that not in that horror kind of no not in that mi- gothic yeah horror i mean tradition. he's got that he's kind of the guy when it comes to that stuff and i yeah, think so he was fiddling it, around with science fiction too at the time right right he was very 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 um he, he was a trailblazer he was also considered one of the first american authors who it wasn't a great living all the time but was a like this is what he did he didn't teach on the side. He didn't do, you know, this yeah. on the side. Um, and um, it wasn't always a great living, but he was a professional writer, and that's all he did and was one of the first Americans. You know, he wasn't working for a newspaper on the side when he was, you know, in his later years. Right. Um, he actually ended up, in his later years, ended up, uh, it's probably one of the only freestanding buildings now in the Bronx. Lived in a cottage in the Bronx. Probably. Really? Uh, then he wound up back, uh, that was towards the end of his kind of functional writing days, and he ended up back in Baltimore, and there's this, all sorts of, like, stuff about his death. He was stuffing ballot boxes in some type of political scam. Was he murdered? Uh, did he die of alcoholism? All sorts of stuff. But that's, there's way too much. I just wanted to hit on EAP before we ended, but it, he, yeah. again, deserves far more a lot more attention than five minutes. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, there, I mean, this look, look what we got in this movie. We got Poe, Corman, <laughs> Matheson, <laughs> Vincent Price, and I would argue also Mark Damon in that. I mean, because giant of definitely one of the giants of, of Hollywood in the, I'll call it the modern era, particularly yeah, really made, as a producer. So, I mean, you've got, you've got a movie. Pretty good pedigree, together. right? Yeah. It's just, <laughs> good, it's unbelievable. Good pedigree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, if you tremendous. don't like Vincent Price, you got Matt. You don't like Matt, you got Corman. You don't like <laughs> right, Price, you got exactly. that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, this is a good. Um, it's a good movie for 1960. It's it's what you would expect and it's solid and um, and it made money. And you know, it, I, it I made don't money. think it I did. would it made money. It made, it's think, the other thing too. Keep you know. Yeah, I don't think money. I would guess. It, I don't think I would guess it was a three hundred thousand dollar budget. I would have probably guessed more. You know what? A third of it went to price. Price, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Price. I, I can't. I mean, there's too much to talk about price. I mean, everything from yeah. his early years to uh, Last Man on Earth to all that kind of all that stuff. But yeah, all right, excellent. Um, I'll save what do you watch and what are you reading for later because we're almost at we're at 98 minutes now. So yeah, next time around we'll we'll hit on that. Sounds good. All right, pal. All right. Good one. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.